to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. Mason New is a writer, teacher, business owner, and U.S. Marine Corps veteran. As a kid, Mason was afforded an excellent education, attending a private boarding school and later studying at Washington and Lee University. However, feeling the call of service and yearning for more life experience, he made the unexpected decision of enlisting in the Marines in his senior year of college. His father, a major figure in his life, was diagnosed with liver cancer just after his enlistment and made it to Mason's Paris Island graduation before passing away just a few weeks later. A lover of language, Mason earned his master's in literature from St. John's College and went on to a 15-year teaching career before deciding to start his own e-learning-focused company, Nuvia. He writes excellent poems and blogs and is hoping to write a novel someday. To tell us about all the above and quite a few things in between, here's Mason. Uh, Mason New, thank you for joining us on Pod So One, a writer, a Marine, a uh, business owner. So, yeah, thanks for being on with us. Thank you. Very cool. So, uh, Mason, you and I chatted about a month ago, I think. Probably. You and I had met a few years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and our mutual connection was Ross McKenzie, my brother-in-law, and a uh, friend of yours and who you've run into multiple times in kind of a crazy small world kind of way. So tell us about your relationship with Ross and how you guys have kind of bumped into each other multiple times over the course of many years. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you guys for having me on. Um, hope it will be, uh, enlightening to some degree or at least entertaining. Um, Ross is an old friend of mine. We, um, Uh, I had the good fortune to go away to school, and he happened to be at the same boarding school, and since we were from the same hometown, he uh, he asked to, you know, to be sort of an older student to shepherd me through things. And anyway, so he and I became good friends during that time of high school, and then he went off to the Naval Academy, and we just stayed in touch in a lot of different ways. And then... Um, and we ran into each other at a, a point in the service um, out in California. Then we ran into each other in grad school. Um, and then he and I have just always stayed in touch. And then a couple of weeks ago, I guess, he sent me the link to the podcast. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And I listened to it. And I just, I, I heard, I had heard some of the, his stories, but I hadn't heard all of those stories. And I just thought that was such an interesting way of getting to know a a friend of mine whom I had known for many years, but I felt like I knew him better after listening to you guys Mm. talk to him. So yeah, that's really cool. And one of the great effects, I think side effects initially for us, but certainly one of the effects that we don't count on, but we like to see it when it happens for sure. And it happens to us too. We have people that we know on and by the end of it, we know them like twice as much as we did before. Yeah. At least twice as much. Yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, like Make, your dad. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, well, that was like ten times as much. So, uh, tell us real quickly about the story of you guys meeting in grad school. When you say grad school, some people may think it's like you went to uh, post grad at Michigan or Ohio State or something. That's not the case for you. No, at no, it's not. So, um, I had spent some time in the military in the Marine Corps after college, and I, I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about that in a second, but. Anyway, I, I went and um, 
I came back from my active duty stint and I went to work in business and I really wanted to get into the internet technology business. And so I moved to Northern Virginia and I was working in the, these two different big corporations and I just really did not like it. I, I, I didn't know what I was doing and, um, I, it wasn't a good time in life. So I decided that I really wanted to get into teaching and, um, I found this very eclectic program at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. And it was, they, they coined the phrase, the great books program. And I thought I was 26 or 27 years old, 26. I said, this, this is the program for me. You know, we'll, I'll go and really like read some of the classics and really get a, a sense for things that my formal education maybe missed. Anyway, so I'm in year two there. I've been reading Homer and Plutarch and Aristotle and all these amazing works of foundational uh, literature and philosophy and history. And I walk out one day, and there's my friend, Ross McKenzie, this guy who I've, I've known my whole life, and he's wearing his Navy uniform. And I'm like, Ross, he goes, Mason, I said, what are you doing here? And he goes, well, I've got a position teaching English at the Naval Academy, and they're going to let me come to class here. And I said, oh, my God, we're going to be in class together. So it was uh, one of those odd times in life. And then um, his son, Stuart, was born while we were there, and he and I got to um, just really sort of delve into a lot of the thinking and philosophy and uh, things that we've always found uh, had common interests about, you know, literature. and How many folks were in that program? And so at that time. It, it's 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 really interesting. So there's an undergrad program that's only a maybe a, a like maybe 150. I'm not sure. And then there's a grad program that's very small. I mean, maybe 25 or 30 people, and they're they're all at different stages. So it's a it's a program that you don't follow a set uh, curriculum. You pick well, you do follow a set curriculum, but you don't. It's not like you start on day one and then on day um, two years later, you've done everything. You pick these semesters and then you delve into these topics. And then as you delve into them, then at the end of that course, your, your mind is just totally opened up in, in a true liberal arts way. You know, not, you're not reading literary criticism. You're reading the real stuff. You're translating Homer's Iliad from Greek you're instead of doing geometry you're reading euclid's proofs and going through and learning how these great thinkers thought and that's sort of the purpose of it it was intellectually stimulating did you find any practicality in what you were learning so not probably the way that we would think of practicality but you know thinking is the ultimate practical exercise mm. you know and thinking through things and evaluating sources and really asking questions. I mean, I, I was an English major and I walked out of the St. John's program. I said, I was 26 years old before I learned how to read a book. Oh, wow. Because reading a book was not about just absorbing information. It was about reading and thinking and asking questions and looking at things in new ways. And that was incredibly stimulating and really has been a guiding point of, I mean, that's the way I try to live my life now. Why, why I read, what I read. 
why I taught school. So do you think that being like a few years older than, than you were in undergrad helped with that kind of more mature approach at books? No question about it. <clears throat> I mean, I, when I went to college at 18, and here I am, you know, 18, 20 years old, and I'm, you know, studying Moby Dick or, or Shakespeare's Hamlet or something like that. And then I didn't, I didn't have enough life experience to understand that. And then I went off and um, I went in the Marines and I had some practical business experience. And then I come back and now I'm reading these things. I'm like, oh my God, they're talking about humanity. They're talking about real things. And, and the other thing is, you know, college, you, you've got distractions and different priorities. And, and this was, I was just solely focused on what I was, what I was studying. Mm. Yeah. I keep going back to uh, this notion that the frontal lobe for Young men is not fully formed until they're twenty five. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Oh, I, I, there's no question about it. And you just, I just had a discipline at that point to really read things for the sake of learning, rather than some idea I had to get a grade in something. Yeah, I mean, Saint, John, Saint John's didn't even emphasize grades. Mm. Yeah, it was, it's more self selecting. It's like you're not here unless you really obviously want to learn. Yeah, and and everyone that you're surrounded with. It has the same goal, mm. you know, so it's back to your practical question. It's not like getting an MBA or a, a specific professional certification or something, because then you would go on to, I don't know, you know, you'd go on in some profession and then you would get career advancement. This was, everyone was there that was just interested, just interested in reading and thinking and talking about stuff. Mm. And you meant, did you say that this was a, like a military affiliated, the St. John's program or only in that it was really close to the day. Yeah. And it's really, it's, it's really bizarre. So in Annapolis, there are two colleges, there's St. John's college, and then there's the U S Naval Academy. And I mean, it is truly the Epicureans and the Stoics. I mean, like it's like Athens and Sparta right next to each other. And I don't know how much I must have some interest in this because Washington Lee, where I went to college, was right next to VMI. It's the same thing. It's the exact same. It's the exact same thing. Huh. So yeah. It's just really interesting dichotomy of things. So, but the Naval Academy was there, and um, and you know we that's a big part of Annapolis culture, and then St. John's is this tiny little bookish place uh, that just the the people there are just so interesting. Why they why they would gravitate to that? Hmm. So it's not it, it has no affiliation with the military, other than they have this tradition in Annapolis where the Naval Academy and St. John's play each other in croquet, <laughs> <laughs> and it is like something out of um, an F. Scott Fitzgerald scene. I mean, it's this big party on the lawn, and the Navy guys are in their very formal, like, croquet things. And then the St. John's students, it's for the undergrads, not for the grad students. But yeah, the yeah. undergrads, they're, like, wearing, you know, flip-flops. And, yeah, yeah, and everybody's having this big party. And, and it's just such an interesting tradition. Tradition. We should get, uh, we should point Mason to the Middlebury Pranksters. I don't remember which episode it was. But it was oh, the Ultimate goodness. Frisbee Division Three National Champs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. And they were called the Pranksters for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but that was good. Yeah, so you mentioned that you really didn't uh, know how to learn fully uh, in, in a way that was enriching for you until you were in your mid-20s, but your parents spent more than a couple of bucks on you yeah, uh, kindergarten right, right. through your undergrad, and I say that as a guy who had went to a, a prep school for 
five years, uh, eighth through twelfth grade. So I'm not saying that from a place of uh, negativity at sure, all. Sure, sure. So talk about kindergarten through undergrad and what that experience was like. Yeah. So that story. So I had the greatest blessing that my parents really want. They always focused on education and they really wanted me to have a good education and they cared a lot about it. And the reason why is um, my dad uh, was an only child. He was born in 1940. Um, He grew up in eastern Henrico County um, and his father and his mother never went to school past eighth grade. Mm. And so my grandfather went to go work um, when he was 14 years old, he worked on Main Street in Richmond. He started out as a board boy on the in the stock market in the in the old days of the stock market or the stock brokerage. They would have these guys that would these kids would write up the stock prices. They would call up to New York, and he started. That's how my grandfather started, and um, he was going to quit. And he just didn't like it. And he got a $75 bonus check for Christmas. And that was more money than he'd ever seen. So he said, so I'm going to stay. And so he stayed his entire life as a stockbroker. And he never, he, 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 he never did any other job. He stayed in this one place. So then along comes my father. And my grandfather was really committed to his education. He really wanted him to go to high school and go to college And so my dad um, went to um, public school, and then he went to Christchurch School in uh, Middlesex, Virginia, a boarding school, and then he went to Washington Lee. So when he graduated from college, he was the first person ever um, that I know of in his line that had ever gone to school uh, and certainly gone to college. So when, when I came along, he really wanted me to be very focused on education and really have the best that I could, I could get. My sister was the same. And that's, that, that's what happened. I, I, I had this incredibly fortunate, uh, independent school education. I went to a a private day school until ninth grade. I went to a boarding school in New Jersey. I went to a private college and I just had this great foundation for learning that I think set me up later um, to really, really absorb those things, but it, at St. John's, but I had to, I really had to, to have a lot more life experience, which is what led me to the Marines. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that. So, uh, your kindergarten through ninth grade experience was at the same school that I, uh, went to eighth through 12th grade. Uh, and so for 10th grade, and I don't know the answer to this question, I'm, I'm going blind here. You went to a boarding school from a day prep school. What was the rationale for the family for you to go to boarding school? Um, well, as I said, my father had gone to a boarding school, so I think he was familiar with it. Um, I was just really craving the independence of it and really wanted to to try to do it on my own. And I, I, I had also read, um, this is sort of silly, but I had read uh, Catcher in the Rye when I was in ninth grade, and I read it a couple of times, and I sort of got this romantic notion about, about boarding school and all of the, you know, fun things that go on. Of course, that's a really serious book, but, you know, I, I, I guess that got in my head. And then, but when I, when I 
really got serious about it, I really saw the potential that I could go and learn independently and live away from my parents. I wasn't somebody who got homesick or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And it was worth the investment, I imagine. I think so. I mean, I don't know. I, it, you know, during the during my time, right before I went, um, you know, it was the 87 crash that mm. happened. So, yeah. you know, there was financial strain in the, in the system. Um, my, I don't know how my parents did it, but they allowed me to go. And, you know, I, I mean, it was, it was eye opening in a, in a really strange way because I came from Richmond, Virginia. And then now I'm up there with people who are big money people from like you can't understand like kind of money new yeah. york you know stuff and i was seeing things i mean <laughs> there was one guy who um his grandfather had built this huge business very successful and everybody in the family i mean we're talking enormous amounts of money and one day i i was coming out of the shower and i said feel like a million bucks and he goes that bad huh <laughs> i was like oh okay wow wow that, that's he he had no real appreciation for struggle i'm guessing no, no he didn't i mean yeah. he was being funny but i think it i think it was actually he really didn't know that yeah so anyway wow so you you brush doubles with some uh big money uh stupid money um <laughs> Not stupid in the intelligence way, but like just a stupid amount. Yeah. Um, and uh, did you ever, uh, were you ever like self-aware that like this is a life, the life that I'm leading, the education I'm getting is one of, you know, kind of like a, a pretty uh, lucky and, and like honor for me to have or like a privilege? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I without a doubt, I was, um, I, I, I was very honored that my parents would um make the sacrifices to let me learn on my own mm. and um <clears throat> you know i think it, i think it was really driven by my dad just being like i i will do whatever it takes to allow you to pursue the education that you want to pursue it's am- it's amazing that your uh grandfather despite um not leaving after the uh you know not leaving the stock market job his whole life uh really focused on that for for his kids um do you have any do you know like why he decided to to focus on his kids when he i'm assuming he had a perfectly fine career as a stockbroker um that is a really good question i don't know what his motivation was and I can only imagine that, you know, when you're raising, and, and, and my father was an only child, so you know that was one thing. It was it was a singular focus. But I guess you know when you're raising children, and you look at the things that you didn't have, or things that you think of as their future, or what they need for their future, as a parent, you. I guess you just, it it totally turned your brain around and said, okay, I've got to make this happen. And I can only, I'm just speculating. My grandfather died when I was in eighth grade. It's not a really fair question, but, 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 but it's a, no, it's, but it's a very interesting question. You know, why did, because not everybody does that, right? There are Mm -hmm. people who have, who, who don't have formal education and generationally it stays that way. 
And maybe it was because he had the financial resources. Um, he worked hard. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And um, so my father was the beneficiary of it, and then I was the beneficiary of it. And do you are you uh, do you have kids? I have two. Yeah. I have okay. A, I have a girl um, who's thirteen, and I have a son who is eleven. Oh, that's right. Uh, the almost Boy Scout. Yeah. Um, so is, is that, do you get the sense that that value is now being passed down from you to your kids? I mean, I still believe in it. You know, I'm trying very hard to, to allow them to grow and flourish and pursue uh, the education and the interests that they have. And they do go to very nice schools, and I'm very fortunate to be able to, to help them do that. That's cool. Was Lawrenceville co-ed or... Uh, it was co. It was co-ed. It had gone uh, co-ed a few years before I got there. Similar to Washington and Lee, the college you went to. Yeah, but there was that was many years before. So I mean, it was more. There was Washington and Lee had uh, become co-ed uh, many more years before I got there. Than when did they become co-ed? So they. So the last. It was in the early mid eighties. Mid eighties, because I. So I applied to Washington Lee and had a choice between Washington Lee and some other schools. And I almost went there. And I remember asking how many young ladies would be in the incoming freshman class. And the answer was something ridiculously low. Because the other schools I was uh, looking at were much bigger schools. And I I knew the math there. Uh Uh-huh. But I didn't know it at WNL, and the answer was something crazy like I twenty five young ladies, yeah. and I'm like, and I bet they're all really, really smart. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, yeah, they're yeah. they're all going to be wildly brilliant people. <laughs> I'm like, okay, the, the math doesn't seem to be working out for me as an eighteen year old. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I can't imagine it was very different for you because you're what five years younger than me. Yes, yeah, so I think I think the last, um, yeah, okay, so. Maybe it was closer. I think the last male, all-male class was the mid-'80s at Washington Lee, so maybe I graduated. I graduated in 87 from high school. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, so, was, um, yeah, so I am five years behind you. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know what it is. I guess I just didn't feel the legacy of single-sex education at Washington Lee the way I did at Lawrenceville. And yeah, I yeah. know that some people at, at boarding school, they had been there when it was all-male, yeah, not Ross, not me, but some of the guys that were had gone there in eighth grade or right, right, right. Like that. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, tell us about your WNL experiences. Um, I don't know how many of those I can share here. Well, but, uh, keep in mind this is for posterity, <laughs> and your kids will listen to this someday. <laughs> um, gosh, well, um. I did uh, get arrested the first weekend I was there, <laughs> so I can tell you to all my future uh, uh, progeny f- progeny that uh, don't do that because <laughs> <laughs> it's really not fun to call home after the first weekend at school and and uh, my mother picks up the phone and says, "Hi, Mason. How was your how was your first weekend in college?" I was like, "It was great. Can you put Dad on the phone?" <laughs> oh, okay. So this was a request for Dad. Yeah, yeah. And and he's like, "How was it, son?" I'm like, "I'm in trouble <laughs> already. <laughs> You've only been there a week. You've only been... it was yeah." I'm yeah, guessing it was, it was uh, alcohol related. It, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. it we, was. I, it wasn't anything severe. I didn't, I didn't, you know, get a DUI or you know, get in a wreck or anything like that. But I was, 
you know, 18 age. years old and had a bunch of beers and, you know, doing what every other freshman does was walking down the street and, you know, stumbled on a, on a curb and the police in Lexington are really, they're just waiting for they're you. They're waiting for you. Yeah. And mm. so, and so, uh, they showed up and, and I, uh, they, they took me in. Um, they said, you know, have you been drinking? Yes, sir. And they took me in and I mean, I was underage too. So that was another problem. And then, so the next morning, uh, it's time for me to be released. <laughs> and, uh, I'm like, I don't know where I am. <laughs> Remember Daniel, this is pre-cell phone so my one phone call would be to whom i mean i you yeah. know i don't it's not like, a, yeah. i didn't even i didn't even know where the where the dorm was relative to where the jail was so i'm sitting there and i'm standing outside and one of the guys who'd gotten thrown in the tank who was uh one of the local guys he's there waiting and i'm like hey man um can you give me a ride back to the Washington and Lee dorms. He's like, yeah, no problem. And so his girlfriend shows up, and it is a white van. That I'm not kidding you. It had the heart shaped window in the back corner. And I get in there. If I'm your dad or your mom, I'm like, and I, I can see this happening. I'm like, don't get in the van. Uh, I know. Well, I never told them this part, but and and the guy gets in there. His girlfriend smoking up cigarettes and everything like that. And I get in the van, and I'm not kidding you. It is like red velvet like interior and i go oh my god this is it this is it (laughs) (laughs) and and um they the people couldn't have been nicer so they dropped me off in front of the freshman dorms you know this clunky old white van and then drive Uh, drove off i mean if i see the red (laughs) velvet action i'm thinking how many felonies have happened in this van oh yeah i mean and it i mean it smelled like smoke and who, who, oh, who knows? Who what knows else. what else? <laughs> you may have just gone from the firing pan into the fire. <laughs> but good thing you didn't. I'm glad you guys asked about that. I haven't thought about that in a long time. I didn't so. see. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I, I made it through college. Uh, certainly drinking underage. I, I think Daniel maybe. I think did that. Too. Yeah, most freshmen. And I, and, uh, I was very fortunate not to uh, spend the night in jail. Yeah, in my college. But uh, I, I certainly would have been guilty. Who knows how many it, times? It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a pleasant experience. But it gets your attention, that's for sure. Did, you, did they give you anything to sleep on? Was it just a hard floor? Um, it, was a, it was a hard floor. And what was interesting is I got picked up relatively early in the night. Oh, and, no. um, and so when I woke up the next day, <laughs> there were a lot more people in there. <laughs> I was like, hey, where'd you come from, buddy? <laughs> Like oh yeah, they got me about three in the morning. <laughs> like oh, man, I got a nice, nice night sleeping yeah, yeah, on dang. this floor. Well, so the lesson learned is if you're going to be arrested for uh, something related to drinking, you're going to be arrested earlier than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they were really running an operation that first weekend. Uh, yeah, uh, well, it was every weekend. I mean, they were just they the 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 police department in Lexington. I think, and you know, it was there was good reason for it. There were people who were driving out in the country and. People got in accidents, and you know yeah. they were they were trying to keep people safe, but it ends up mm. being a lot of that kind of stuff. You know, you'd pick up a guy and throw him in jail. So, yeah, I, mean, I guess yeah. there's a chance you could have driven later that night, but the chances are you weren't going to. 
Well, I yeah, I I mean, I didn't have a car there, so there was no way for that. But but your point is a good one. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think that they're, you know, in a small town where people are misbehaving, and you got a you know a huge percentage of them in college. And uh, revenue is important to keep things going for well, them. Well, that's yeah. true too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we that that happens. Yeah, the, yeah. that's a consideration anyway. Yeah. Is Washington and Lee, uh, George Washington and Robert E. Lee? It is. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it is a very controversial uh, moment for the school right now, uh, which is, you know, the, the, the legacy of Lee and its yeah. name and his presence. He's actually buried there. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's Lee Chapel and his family is buried there. And um, it's, a, it's, it's such a controversial topic. Um, I'd rather avoid it to be honest. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because no, I, it, 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 it's really interesting to be on this part of history and sort of seeing what's going on and then also be an alumnus of the school where people have very, very strong opinions. About right. It. Yeah. Yeah. And the school is so much more than uh, its namesake. Uh, yeah. So it's a shame. A lot of that's being drowned out, at least in the public. Uh, yeah, and, and and you know there there are so many stakeholders on that issue that are just can't see eye to eye, and no. I, mm-hmm. I I think that the school and the board is really trying to work hard to see that process through, but it, it's incredibly complicated. Yeah, I don't envy that job. Uh, yeah. And also, you uh, ended up going through, and I, I say this with all uh, sincerity as a guy who went to a prep school, you spend a ton of time going to private school, whether it's a day school, a boarding school, and then Washington Lee is uh, a, a wonderful institution, but it's not a big place, and it's not mm-hmm. cheap. And so I can't, I can't imagine somebody who's lived that life, age 5 to age 22, then ends up deciding to enlist in the Marine Corps. That's right. Tell us how you got to uh, that decision. So um, that's a really important part of my story for whatever reason. But um, so when I was in, when I was a junior in college, I'd always really believed in service. And I think that if you have the blessings to live in this country, that you you have to do something to give back to the country. It doesn't have to be military service, but for me, it was that. That, that was what I wanted to do. I said, I, I feel obligated if I've enjoyed the freedom of, that I've had and the benefits that my family has had, that I need, to, I need to at least lend whatever I can to the effort of the United States. So junior year, um, I happened to be working on an internship in Washington, D.C., and I uh, would walk by the Marine Liaison Office, and they had a poster, and the poster was of a recruit getting yelled at by a drill instructor, and the, the, the slogan on the poster was, we don't promise you a rose garden. And... I don't know what it was, but that just resonated with me. I just loved that idea. That, and so I went around and I talked to all of the recruiters. I talked to the Army recruiter, the Navy recruiter. The, I don't think I talked to the Air Force recruiter. And then, and why would you? <laughs> Chair Force. <laughs> um, That's exactly right. Um, 
But uh, I knew I couldn't fly, so why do I go there? But anyhow, um, so I go and I talk to all the recruiters, and, and those conversations went fine. And then when I went to talk to the Marine Corps recruiter, he said, um, well, what are you going to give to us? Mm. And I said, what? You know, I just had these long conversations about the GI Bill, and here's what we'll do with you, for, with you or for you in the Navy, and here's what we'll do for you in the Army, and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, so I turned to the sergeant, and I said, what do you mean? He goes, this is not the equation. What you put into it, you'll get out of it. You will put more into this than you will ever get out of the Marine Corps. And that line combined with the we don't promise you a rose garden, just it unlocked something in my brain. And I said, that's the group I've got to be with. I've got to be pushed as hard as I possibly can to see what I'm really made of. And I think it's in reaction to this very nice, formal, uh, private education. I I feel like I was sitting there like I've had these incredible privileges and I need to be pushed as hard as I can. And, you know, to me, the Marine Corps just had that, had that theme. And they did not disappoint. They delivered. <laughs> they delivered on the pushing me to the limit. <laughs> so I, I don't know that all uh, 37 of our listeners have seen Full Metal Jacket, but is the first, I don't know, 55 minutes of that movie. It's my favorite hour of any movie ever made. I assume you've seen it. I have seen it many times. Now, that was uh, so far. But that, that was back, I think it was set in the 60s Vietnam, yeah, Vietnam time. Yeah. Uh, how different was your experience going through basic? Um, it, it It is different in a couple of ways. I mean, you know, it's Hollywood, so they're trying to tell a specific story. And they're trying to entertain. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in the movie, there's one drill instructor and in reality, you get four. <laughs> so the, um, the, the ratios are a little harsher. Yeah. In reality. So the so so the Marine Corps is very specific about drill instructors and how they how they how they are are trained and you know the ethos of it. And uh, so I I you know, I'm I'm a senior. I've been having a great four years. Um, and I just said I got to do it. And so I, I enlisted in February of my senior year in college. And it didn't happen. You were the only one from WNL your year that did that. There's no way one. anybody else did it. Yeah. No, there was one other guy who he had enlisted and he was in the reserves, but he had done it during his time in school. Um, and he and I had lots of conversations about it. And I was just always really impressed with him and, so anyway, so yeah, so I um, I graduated on a Thursday, and on Sunday, uh, my head was shaved, and I had the biggest, meanest people I've ever met <laughs> screaming at You're me. You're like, why like, are you so mean? Wait a minute. I was just like studying poetry like a few weeks ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sir? <laughs> so, That's awesome. So uh, tell us your most memorable experience with BASIC, because Paris Island is not for 99.7% of humanity, I don't think. It's, uh, it's, it's tough. Um, I have a lot of uh, really, really good memories. Um, uh, there are two that come to mind. Um, 
the the first is uh, so um, you know I, I was the only guy in my boot camp who had graduated from college, and there was there were a couple of guys who were in college or who had dropped out, but pretty much everyone there was about eighteen nineteen years old. <clears throat> so I'm twenty two. Uh, I have a college degree, and I'm trying so desperately to just lay low. Everybody says, just stay you don't want, out of the way. You don't want to be college boy. You, you don't, don't want to be, be college boy. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody. So the first you know, moment when they're screaming at us and doing all these things, this guy, <laughs> uh, Sergeant Sedino, comes up and he goes, hey, new. You got college? And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'd been there maybe, you know, 30 minutes. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, great. <laughs> you know? And then that meant that I took on a certain role in the platoon called the scribe. And the scribe is basically sort of the, the guy who makes sure that everything happens and, you know, goes people. It's, it's really more of an organizational. You're a project uh, manager, essentially. Yeah, but it's yeah, not a project. But, but, it's no. for the, but it's for the whole platoon, right? right? right so right. the drill instructors, when they don't want to do something, they turn it over to the scribe. It's the worst additional duty you could possibly get, probably. It, t- terrible. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, one of the benefits of being the scribe is that you, um, you were in the, the very first rack. So just to explain, so a barracks has racks and uh they're bunk beds essentially mm-hmm. and so the 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 recruit who's the guide he gets the first the bottom rack and the guide is basically sort of the leader and that guy gets f- fired all the time and then the scribe is in the second rack which is uh in the second uh the, the upper bed on, mm-hmm. the, on the bunk bed and which means that I was next to all of the guys who were the biggest men in the platoon because they, 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 I'm not explaining this very well, but they organize the barracks based on height. So if I'm in the first rack, even though I'm not a very big guy, everybody down for the next 10 racks are the biggest men in the platoon. And it so happens that a lot of those particular men were African-Americans. So, so on, um, so we had this little incident and what happened was there was a guy who was not very good at his, and he kept getting us in trouble. And so private private pile kind of, it was a private pile. It was exactly like a private pile, except for not that bad. And, um, so the gentleman in the first squad who happened to, they, they, were a group, right? So it was it was the biggest men. It was all of basically it was all the black guys in the in the platoon. All the African American men bonded together, and they decided that Private Pyle was not pulling his weight. <clears throat> so I happened to be on a fire watch, which means I was in the. Barracks. It's the it's the dumbest thing that the military does to people. Yeah, you're you're watching the barracks to make sure it doesn't catch you on fire. <laughs> yeah. And if it does, you, you need to tell somebody. Just sound the it. alarm, right? So anyway, um, they decide that they are going to deal with this guy, and I happen to be there, and I was I was m- making sure that I I looked to make sure that they didn't hurt him, 
but they were, you know, this is, it's a military unit. Like it's going to police itself. So the next morning lights come on drill instructors, get out of the rack, get out of the rack, get out of the rack. And then there's this pause. Holy shit. What is this? And private pile is duct taped to his bed, to his rack with his boots duct taped to his ears. (laughs) And so, so, you know, who did this? Who did this? You know, they're the drill instructor. And they're they're loving it. They're loving it. But, you know, of course they have to enforce the rules. So it so happens that the drill instructors find out that I know something about it. And they worked me to the bone. They, I mean, push-ups, sit-ups. I mean, they were in my face. Tell us who it was. Sir, this recruit does not know. And, I mean, I'm doing push-ups, and they're just all over me. And it just so happens that one of the guys in that group who had meted out the justice, he came back to confess, and he saw that I was getting punished for it. So later that night, I'm in my rack, and I hear this, hey, new. And I look over, and it's all of those men that I'm talking about, and they're standing around my rack, and they present me with a lemon meringue pie uh-huh. that they had <laughs> stolen from the, from the chow hall. I, I don't know how they marched it back without anybody knowing. Because they had to march. Yeah, yeah we, we were marching all the time. It's and not so, something you march with easily. And they go, they go, we got this for us, but we want you to have the first slice. Oh, that's awesome. That's so you probably had to do hundreds of push-ups and whatever hundreds, else. hundreds. I can wow. do like maybe seven now, but I'm <laughs> yeah, at my advanced age, I'm lucky to do three. Yeah. How did you know that the right thing to do was to not rat? Um, that is a good question, and I think it is because you know the the Marine Corps spends so much time developing unit cohesion. Um. And, you know, at, and at, a, at a low level like that, it's, it's not that severe, but, you know, you're a unit. You're, you, have to, <clears throat> you, you have to look after one another. And the drill instructors are there as a countervailing force because they're trying to make you work together. and to become, It's not an individual effort. Hmm. So, you know, to me it was, well, my allegiance was to, uh, to, the, to the men that I'm with. Yeah, the yeah. DIs want cohesion, but they're also testing you. Yeah, they're testing. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I, I, I also probably figured out if I told them it was probably going to be worse. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. Was, yeah, you're not a dumb guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> huh, if I do this, I wonder what happens next. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 That's very cool. Yeah, so uh, your dad, uh, the way I understand it, talking from you with you a couple weeks ago, he, he passed away shortly after you graduated college. Yeah, in fact, he made it to my Paris Island graduation. Oh wow! And uh, he was—he uh, had been diagnosed with liver cancer in April, right after I signed up. And he said, "You—you—you've um, got to continue. You—you want to do this, you know." It, and I don't know if I would have had the option to get out of it anyway, but it—it it wasn't really a factor. He just said, "You got to—you got to keep going." And I, I, my mother has always said she was forever indebted to the Marine Corps in one way because he focused on the only thing I want to do is to see him at graduation. And he, and he died uh, about three weeks after 
after uh, he was there. And it was really bizarre. I still have this memory of, you know, I had been down there for 13 weeks and, you know, here they are, the families are there and they release us. And, you know, here my dad just sort of emerges out of this crowd. And, you know, he'd been, I mean, he, he was a skeleton of a, of a man at that point because the chemo had, you know, beaten him up and the cancer had beaten him up so bad. So it was, it was really powerful. I have this, I have this picture of, of, of the two of us walking away and he's, you know, he's so frail and here I'm at the best shape of my life. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. just this incredible irony of life. Yeah. Right? A little bit of passing the baton sort of yeah, thing. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and, um, but that was intense because then when he died, then I'm in the Marines and, you know, that, that's not, it, you know, you know, you can't stop just because you're upset because, you know, your father's passed away. Mm. Well, tell us about uh, your dad a little bit more about what he was to you uh, growing up. Uh, he, he was an amazing guy. He was very patient, um, very rational, uh, was just a real firm believer in and this country and the benefits that, that it extends to people. Um, he was a, a believer in, uh, he was Christian, you know, and I had just really, um, amazing conversations with him at the end of his life, just about, you know, what it means. And, you know, he just said, you know, sorry. That's all good. Um, excuse me. It, he just he 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 just really was. Uh, he imparted a lot of really good lessons to me, which were about you know just trying to live an honest life. You know that was mm. that was sort of it. He sounds like a good man and a great father. He he was amazing, and and you know it's hard now because now I'm a dad and I'm like, oh, what would he do? Or you, you know, feel like I, you can't measure up, he, right? Yeah. Well, and and you know, I whenever I lose my temper or something like that, I'm like, oh, my dad wouldn't do that, but he probably did. You know, I just I just don't remember or <laughs> yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You may have romanticized. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Memory is a funny thing that way. You know, you you have these memories that go back, and you're not you're not really sure how accurate they are now. Anyway, sometimes. they're not perfectly accurate yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you uh, have are fairly prolific writing, and you. Uh, tell us about your writing career because you ended up writing for your master's degree. You're an English major, so you wrote quite a bit undergrad. I've read Daniel and I've read some of your uh, blog posts. You are a very good writer. Thank you. I've enjoyed uh, reading uh, the blog posts that I've, I've run across. Uh, but tell you, tell us about your writing experiences. What gravitates you to writing? What it means to you? Uh, because you clearly enjoy doing it. Well, thank you. I, um, I'm not a professional writer. I mean, it's not something that I sit down and do every day, although I do try. Um, but I, I am fascinated by language and how words work. And when I read sentences that someone else has written that are just, just perfect, I think that that I don't think there's anything more attractive to like, God, how did that person write that, that sentence? Um, so after my teaching career, I taught for 15 years and I decided I wanted to start my own business. And I was talking with a friend of mine who is a real professional writer, uh, this woman named Amanda Ripley, and she's written articles for, um, Atlant- the Atlantic Wall Street Journal. She's written a couple books. She's a journalist, and I was talking to her about writing, 
And I just said, you know, I'm trying to do this and I, I really want to write more. And she goes, you just have to practice. You have to write. And the greatest thing about the internet, if you want to write, there is no barrier to entry at it, of it at all. You don't have to get an editor's approval. You don't, I mean, you're not going to get paid, but you can put anything out there. So I started blogging to try to get to this proficiency. I mean, it's one thing to write in an academic sense, but it's another thing to tell a story. And that's really, you know, the best blog posts are really stories. Right. And so, you know, I'd spent all my life studying these stories and studying language, but I really wanted to, well, how do you do it? You know, how do you really tell a story? And that's why I started blogging and I, I put most of my early blogs on LinkedIn and I found that that formula is good in some ways. Um, but then I started putting them on medium, which has a much, much more attractive feel to it and you can distribute it out and, you know, I, but I'm still learning so much about it. How to, how do you get people to read? I mean, you guys were nice enough to read stuff I said. <laughs> So. Yeah, uh, I saw the claps. I don't know how to add the claps, but I would have added, you know. <laughs> but it, it looked like they were pretty well read, uh, some, some of your articles. Um, and it, it seems like people enjoy what, what you write. Well, it's interesting that sometimes I get the biggest feedback on business-related ones or ones that are entrepreneurial in nature or go through a, a system of how do you think about things. Or I, But I try to tie a story back to either literature I've read or... Uh, or, uh, um, you know, experiences in the military or experiences in, that I've had in business or working with entrepreneurs and try to frame that because that's a popular topic, right, in, in, in blogging is mm -hmm. entrepreneurship and design and, and these kinds of topics. So, so those tend to get some traction, but the ones I really love are when I feel like I get into there's a rhythm and uh, some of the ones that I've written that are not related to those topics but are more of a personal nature, like the one I sent you about my dog. Yep, yep. Um, when I was talking with Amanda and she was guiding me on, on this writing process, she, I, I said, I, I feel like I got the rhythm on this one. She goes, oh, you got the, you, you hit it. You know, and there's a there's this it's this almost like cosmic experience where you figure out that the words and your thinking are all working in the right same direction, and it seems like you're telling something that's true and honest and real, and that is an incredible feeling. And then, and once you experience that feeling, you're chasing that rhythm. You're, cha you're chasing it. You're yeah. chasing it. I've written some poems sometimes that. And that I'm like, ah, oh, that's right. And then you go back and you look at it and you're like, oh, no, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'll look at something. I'll look at something I wrote last year. I'm like, God, that, that's a, the wrong word. Why did I choose that? You but know, you so, leave it up. Yeah. Or, or you change it then. And you're, you know, it's, it's, just, it's, it's a very peculiar feeling. And, and writing is, is it's, it's an entirely solitary exercise. Mm. But the whole time you're doing it, you're trying to imagine this going out and you're having a conversation with someone. So when somebody writes back and says, hey, that was really, I really appreciated that or I really liked that story or thank you for writing it, it's a, there's, a, there's this real feeling of gratitude because it's like, hey, you read, you read what I wrote and you had some reaction to it. So are, are you writing as a hobby? 
For the most part, yeah. I mean, I ideally, I've got these grand aspirations for one day publishing a book. So I think that sometimes blogging is really just a form of practice, you know, like an athlete going out and practicing and practicing and practicing so that then when it comes time for the game, you know how to perform. Right. Yep. I mean, that's one of my life's goals is to write a book, but I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't really dedicated enough time and energy to it but I feel like I'm getting closer to that. Fiction or nonfiction, do you think? Um, fiction. And, and the reason why is I I've, I've have several storylines in my head on different topics that I find really interesting. And, and there, some of them are rooted in history. Some of them are rooted in family lore or just different stories that I pick up over, over time. Uh, so I think it will be a fiction when I finally get it, I've, I've, I've got a couple of things. I've, I've, I've actually written some drafts, but I haven't gotten to the, to the finish line yet. So any, uh, teasers on what it would be about? Well, I've got one story that I'm working on. Um, so years ago I saw this, uh, this writer, Tom Robbins, give a talk here in Richmond and, um, and the interviewer asked him, you know, your protagonists are almost always women. Why, why do you write that? And he said, well, I don't want to fall into the trap of autobiography when I'm writing fiction. <clears throat> and, and, and Tom Robbins is a real writer. I mean, he's, he's very famous and, you know, critically acclaimed. So I have this one story. Um, I was walking in the fan one day. I, I take walks in the fan. And in Richmond, and there was this just image popped in my head of this woman, and she's getting a tattoo of a flame coming up her leg. <laughs> and I'm like, that is the most, that is the weirdest thing I've ever thought. Like, what is that? And then I thought, wait a minute, why, why is she getting this tattoo of this flame on her leg? And that is how. It started uh-huh. how I started writing this story uh-huh. about trying to figure out, like it's almost like I'm investigating this story. Why does she have this? Why is this happening? This and is all in your head. Like, it, we you didn't actually see somebody getting a tattoo. No, no, I've never, no, I've never seen anybody. I mean, I think I've seen a video of somebody getting a tattoo, but I mean, I've never not this particular thing. And right. so I had this image in my head, and so I, I came down and I started writing it, and just. It started one thing led to another, and, and it, it just sort of morphed into a story um, that you know hasn't gone but so far, but maybe one day it will. You have a de- decent idea of why in your head? No, I don't know the conclusion yet. Okay. Um, I, I remember reading, you, you know, every writer is different. Uh, some writers are very disciplined and outline, and they know where they're going with things. I and I read, um, I think it was E.L. Doctorow who said, I think that was it, who said, you know, writing is like driving with uh, in the fog with the headlights on, mm-hmm. and you can see just far enough, and you know you're on the road, but you don't know where it's going. Yeah, and I think that's the way my brain works. You know, when I'm writing, I mean, sometimes when I'm writing a blog post, I have a specific topic or a theme that I'm trying to hit on, but I, I don't know where it's going to end up sometimes. Mm. Could that, is that the reason why some writers need to need an editor? Yes. And editing is, 
I've learned a little bit about editing, but yes, editing is somebody who is not so emotionally attached to the story looking for places where the reader will understand better what the writer is trying to convey. Because yeah. sometimes the writer is so close to the topic that he or she might not see where where the gap is. And the really good editor will come in there and be like, no, that that line that you're following or that character you've developed, that doesn't work. Yeah. Because they're thinking about it from the reader's perspective often. And ultimately, that's who you're writing for mostly. You're writing for yourself, but you're mostly to, But to be reader. good, you have to really think about the experience that the reader is having. Yeah. That makes because sense. that's the way I look at it. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, I wish you all the best trying to put a book together because it sounds really, really hard to me. It's, it, it requires a lot. You have to do it in a very disciplined manner. And that's, I think, you know, running my own business and doing the other things that I have to do with, you know, family responsibilities. I just haven't made that dedication to mm. that particular project just yet. All right, so go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say, let's talk about the uh, the business. That's where I was going. Um, <laughs> yeah, you. Uh, yeah, tell tell us a little bit about it. So, uh, I, as I mentioned, I taught for fifteen years in the classroom. I loved teaching. I loved learning. I loved helping people learn. I really, my personal philosophy is that people are happiest when they are learning things that are relevant to their lives. When you you know, when, when somebody learns something that can make their life better, then they're really, really very happy. Mm-hmm. So personally, I've just always enjoyed helping people with that process. So I am, uh, I'm, I'm coming up on, I'm 46 now, but I'm coming up on age 40. I'm looking at my life and my career. I'm seeing all of these really interesting trends related to technology and online learning And I was teaching in a school, and I thought, you know, there's no way for me to get into online learning if I'm still teaching in the classroom. I suppose there are ways to do it, but not for me. I really wanted to just get my, sink my teeth into online learning and understand what it is to run a business. And so I opened up a uh, consulting company called Nuvia, which stands for New Way, Latin for way, New Way of Learning, with my name. And... I, I just hung out my own shingle and just work on all kinds of e-learning projects. So I just try to find ones where people are trying to help a constituency. It could be students. It could be employees. It could be people out in the world just learn better, learn more efficiently, use technology. And I started this company, and I went around and talked to all these places, and they were like, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. It's really interesting. So I'm like, okay, all right. So I really had to learn a lot more and what I was trying to do. And then um, this little thing called COVID-19 pops up. <laughs> so the conspiracy theorists out there amongst our 37 listeners might think that you uh, maybe had something to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can assure you I was not in Wuhan, China um, at the, at the, the, the animal markets. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying like, you really should, you really should eat this. It's going to help my business. <laughs> I really need you to eat this pangolin or bat or whatever it was that they're saying is the source of this thing. So, uh, yeah, so it's been, I mean, it's been, it's been wild to see, you know, clients I have that are working in, in the e-learning or ed tech space, how their businesses have just exploded and the interest that people have and school systems are 
now like, oh my God, what is going on? How do we do this? How do we figure this out? So clients are falling in your lap, essentially. Well, they, I mean, I'm a person of one, so I'm, I'm, it's, that's one of the big challenges, right. right? Is how do you manage running the business, doing the work? I'm, I'm getting close to that point where I'm going to have to bring in more and more people to help me on some of these projects. Um, because it's, it's, it, you know, this is the moment where education is changing right in front of our eyes. Probably more it, dramatically than it has in hundred years. It's the same system in a way that it was a hundred years ago, yeah. you know, and now, um, COVID-19, not just from the learning standpoint, I mean, that's one thing, you know, do people need to be in the same room learning or can they learn in a distributed environment? Of course, the age of this person that matters. And there are all these other, con- there are all these other concerns, but it's also triggering incredible financial strain on education environments, higher ed, higher ed athletic departments, uh, college athletic departments. You know, it's, it's causing all kinds of changes in the education world. It's speeding up broken models. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's speeding up the breaking of, of, of their models. Which is, I, I think we'll look back and think, I'm glad it broke the way it did and glad it broke so quickly because you had to have something to force it to break, and I don't think we were headed towards a natural break anytime soon. No, I mean, you, there's so many systems of, that preserve the status quo in any kind of a learning environment, and the more bureaucratic, the more status quo that's there. And I was chatting with a, a guy who invests money in ed tech businesses and, and just has his finger on the pulse of a lot of things, and he said, this is speeding up what was already in place for many uh, institutions of, of education. So, Do you we'll think that it's going to be a permanent change? Because uh, I still get the sense that people are optimistic of, of a kind of return to normal. Maybe not fully, but eventually getting back into the classroom. I think that is a great question. I think those things, like getting back in the classroom, there will always be a yearning for that. There will always be a, an, an effectiveness to teaching where the teacher and the student are in proximity to one another. But your question is a really good one, and that is related to how long we go where we are under these restrictions. And this is this is not just true for education. This is true for everything that I can understand. You know, how is the restaurant business going to change if we go two years where we're under these restrictions? Or what if people don't travel for two years? You know, at that point, you're really talking about permanent seismic societal changes. Yeah. If, if people get acclimated to doing things, I mean, you know, people are now working from home in ways that they never were. and Never now, would have considered. Yeah, yeah. And, and now companies are saying, hey, this is, this is good. I don't, this have is, to, I don't have to have as much commercial real estate. Right. Yeah. So um, education, I mean, it's, higher ed is a hugely expensive endeavor. And, you know, how long can it sustain the, that very expensive model? And I don't know. And, mm. and, and if it goes two or three years where people are shifting to more online or they're, or they're not going to schools um, that they normally would, I don't know. Yeah. And when you guys were saying about accelerating the brokenness, were you guys referring in part to the, the like, 
ridiculous rates of tuition that have been happening and like the administrative bloat of higher education? Uh, that's what I was thinking of for sure. You know, and and I think that uh, people who are working in higher ed would say that that's a problem. I mean, they would acknowledge that. But you know, the fact is that <clears throat> only a certain percentage of the population can pay big tuition. So it it has to be paid for somewhere. So it's either through loans or um, or you know charitable giving to say a, a private school like one of the ones we went to Wayman Mary or UVA or you know Washington Lee. So you know as as you get into those models where you're not you know not enough people can pay it and then it's got to get it's it, something has something to change. has to correct or give yeah yeah because I mean you know they've expanded huge infrastructure scholarships have gone up because they got somebody's got to pay the for all these things, plus the salaries of the professors. Yeah. Um, right, do you want to ask the standard question? I can. Yeah. yeah. I'll go for go, it. Go be really pithy here because I think we know the answer. Oh, I, yeah. I think we do too. Okay. Mason, would you rather uh, <laughs> try to become a stand-up comedian or would you uh, instead join the military between those two choices? Well, I know that's your standard question. <laughs> so I actually thought about this for a second. And obviously... There's an answer because I did go in the military. But I would add one caveat, which is that the military has some of the funniest people I have ever <laughs> known. Some, some intentionally funny and some not. Yes, right. <laughs> that's, there's, a, that's a great point. And so, yes, I would, be, I, I would not be good as a stand-up comedian, but I'd, I would like to be a very, very funny person in the Mar- in the marines or the military whatever that that there is a real hilarity to life there he's the first one to combine them yeah <laughs> that's huge <laughs> and to talk about humor in the mil- in the military like that i've never been in the in the military but you know i've been on sports teams and and kind of situations where maybe it's an approximation of that sort of camaraderie and that same kind of humor and uh it seems like it'd be a really fun time yeah it's it's true and and it's it, it's a it's a brand of humor that no one else can understand. So, like what you're describing, this if you're on a soccer team or something like that, mm. and you're you're enjoying your camaraderie, and there's a there's a banter, there's a sense of humor there. It's the same thing in the military. It's just you don't find it in a in a in any other context, right? You can't. I mean, it doesn't belong in polite society. No, it, it does not. <laughs> so we talked about basic training for you. Uh, you were, I asked you your MOS before we started recording, and you said you're an Amtrak guy. Yeah. Can you tell our audience what an Amtrak guy so does? So Amtrak is, think of a tank with treads, big metal, and it um, splashes off the back of a ship with 25 combat-loaded Marines and then does an amphibious assault. So you come off the, off the ship... On something that barely floats, and then <laughs> there's a lot of metal there. There's a yeah. lot of metal, and it doesn't naturally float. Like the bilge pumps have to keep working. Right, right. And then you bring the marines in, and then you support the the combat element in uh, you know going after the objective. So it's it's the C part is not it's not intended to be very long. Mm. It's it's supposed to be deployed from the ship, and in the current conflicts, and there we haven't done a. Uh, a seaborne assault since maybe Inchon, 
Yeah. Or maybe there was one in Vietnam that I'm not sure. Of, I don't think but, so. But, um, but in the current conflict, it's you know they're moving they're moving people around in big metal boxes with, that have weapon systems on them to to support the support the Marines on the ground. I mean, what you're describing is the origin story from the Marine Corps. It was meant to be the amphibious force for right. the U.S. military. Right. right. Yeah. So, so you're at the core <clears throat> of it. All right, so you're our first Marine we've had on the podcast. We've had a, a few Army guys, a couple Navy guys. I'll tell my one Marine Corps joke that I know. It's pretty quick. <laughs> Have I told you this one, Daniel? I don't know. All right, so in the Army, there's a nine-man uh, squad in the infantry community, and all nine of them are infantrymen. In the Marine Corps, they also have infantry squads. Um, there are nine as well. Eight of them are infantrymen. Do you know what the ninth man <laughs> no. does? He's a photographer. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is this about the marketing? No, they're very good at marketing. <laughs> well, my, my one Army joke, I tell my son, is I'm like, you know what Army stands for, right? And he goes, what? Ain't ready for Marines yet. <laughs> See, he's a Marine because he immediately threw out Chair Force when he brought up Air Force. <laughs> but one time, the, but to make fun of my own um, service to a, to one extent, we were in the we were doing a training in the desert in Twenty Nine Palms, California. I mean, it's insanely hot. You know, 120, 120. It's not degrees. humane. Yeah. It's really, really rough. And uh, we've been out there for two weeks and. You know, everybody's grousing and complaining and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And this one guy goes, hey, man, you know what USMC stands for? And we're like, no, what? He goes, it stands for you sign the mother contracts and <laughs> shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was pretty good. Like, like, hey, all right. he's, not, he's not lying. He's got a good point. We put ourselves here. Uh, that's good times. Yeah. We, we could go on for a while. Uh, yeah. To, just to be clear, though, I, I'm a big fan of the Marine Corps. Uh, guys that are willing well, to join the Marines are studs well, in my we're all We're all got the same goal, you know, in any military service. You're just trying to do your best. And, you know, some people gravitate to one service or another for whatever reason. Yeah. So. It just took uh, one E7 and a poster for you. To join that's, the right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I mean, you? that's how dumb I am, right? I'm like, oh, that poster looks great. I mean, it could have been Star Wars. Be like, oh, I'll be a Jedi Knight or something. <laughs> it's it's pretty cool psychology, too, the, the marketing on that poster, because it's like, yeah, this is going to suck. You know, this yeah. is not going to be fun. And you actually were drawn yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Huh. Did you have, were you aware of the option of... Um, like OCS, I was, and and the the other part of that story is that was really my goal was I wanted to enlist so that I would get in shape and understand the system and you know really know it because I really wanted to I wanted to become an officer, uh, but then when my dad died right after boot camp and everything just sort of got really chaotic at home I I just I never could circle back to that goal and and meet that. And that was just a personal choice I made. I, I was worried about my mother and I just didn't know if that was the right thing for me to do at mm. that time. It just really changed. And I, who knows what would have happened if my father had lived, but right. Yeah. And, and given your story, uh, to get to an officer, it, officers are one fifth of the U S military, maybe mm-hmm. 15%, uh, in the Marine Corps, they're it's unusual to find a Marine officer. There aren't, there aren't that many around. 
and you need momentum and continuity to get there and your life was just not going to allow for that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I got the experience that I really wanted, you know, which was to really be pushed and see what I was made of. And, uh, it's a brotherhood or, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a thing that you're just part of at that point. And, um, my wife's grandfather was second wave at Iwo Jima. Uh, and he and I always had this thing that we could talk about. Now he, you know, he'd been in the, the bloodiest battle in, in the Pacific. I mean, he, he had seen it from a completely different point of view, but it was this, it was a spiritual connection that I had to him because we had this shared experience of being a Marine. Yeah. And you were both willing to do things that most of mankind couldn't contemplate. Yeah. Is the yeah. battle hymn of the Republic, uh, the Marine fights or is that all of the U S no, military? That is, that was actually written in the civil war, uh, around the civil war time. It's actually published in the Atlantic, the battle hymn of the Republic. Huh. Um, the Marines hymn, I don't know when was written, but that is, that, that is a separate, every service has its own song. So the one about like the shores of Tripoli, that's the Marines hymn. You're oh, okay. Right. That's yeah. the one I'm thinking of. That's not the battle hymn of the Republic. Oh, okay. Okay. Very cool. We, we can Google that later. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we have a role where we try not to Google during oh. the actual recording. Right. We could. I mean, there's nothing stopping us, but I think we're good here. So is that, that's your father-in-law? That was it? Uh, no, no. My gra- my grandfather-in-law. So my wife's grandfather oh, okay. was, uh, and he was a real character. He, uh, he was from Louisiana. And um, when I was a senior, my wife, I was dating when I was in college. And he came to the campus one day and I said, judge foot. He was a judge. I said, judge foot. Um, I just want you to know I've joined the Marine Corps. And I mean, this guy, you know, he fought the whole war in the Pacific and he goes, well, sometimes you'll like it. Most times you'll hate it. (laughs) And it's not much fun getting shot at. (laughs) He he was speaking. uh, He he was, he told the truth. I mean, I never got shot at, so I don't know that experience, but I could only imagine. It's not fun. Yeah, <laughs> not fun. Yeah, I, uh, I imagine he's no longer with us. But he is he, not. Yeah, but it would be great to talk to him. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he is an amazing guy. Amazing. Man. All right, so when we chatted a couple of weeks ago, um, you had said, Paul, I, I know a lot of people that talk about doing a podcast, but you're the only one actually doing it. I said, yeah, yeah Daniel yeah. and I are, uh, I guess we're we're not exceptional, but we're it's unusual that we're doing a podcast. Yeah. Right, exceptional is a strong word. Yeah, yeah I, I, I didn't. Uh, I'm not trying to associate <laughs> us with exceptionality. Uh, but anyway, you you've toyed with the idea of doing your own podcast. I know you've recorded one for your God kids. Do I call them? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about the recording you've already done, and then uh, the idea that you have going. So um, I I just think that podcasts are really interesting. I think this is we're having a very intimate conversation, you know, and I just think that the, the sound and the way that people are having these conversations and it, it's, it's incredible. It's so different than what we normally see in the media, right? I mean, yeah. who we, we're sitting down having an hour long conversation that someone is going to sit down. Hopefully lots of people are going to sit down and listen to, and maybe they learn something or maybe they come away, but that that's very different than the way that we live our lives now and these yeah. tweets and bings and bongs and, yeah. and a, pings and emails and everything. So I think sort of philosophically podcasts are really interesting to me that it's a, it's an old form of communication. 
Um, now, on my the one podcast that I did, I uh, I called it my Godfather's podcast because um, back in the early '90s, my dad had made these radio shows that he recorded on a reel to reel, and then converted to a cassette tape. Daniel, you probably have never even seen one. Of He's these. seen them in museums, yeah. <laughs> and then he distributed these to his godchildren. And he, my dad was a big music lover. He, he knew a lot about music. And so he would record basically a radio show where he would talk and sort of say, well, this is Elvis Presley, and here's who he was, and here's, you know, these different people that he was interested in. And um, so about 15 years ago, one of the godchildren, it was probably 10 years ago, one of the godchildren called me up and he said, hey, I've got the tapes of your dad. And I go, you got to be kidding me. So I, I converted them to a digital format, or I, had a, I, I gave it to a service that did that. And for the first time in 20-some years, I heard my dad's voice again. Oh, it's I mean, amazing, It right? was amazing. I mean, it was a truly amazing experience. So anyway, so when I did my own Godfather's podcast, it was the same idea. Now, I yeah. don't know as much about music. I know a little bit, but... You know, I I read some poems and I wrote a story and said, and my godchildren are all small, so I wrote a, like a children's story about my two dogs, and you know, I just sort of talked through these things. And the idea was to preserve it, preserve my voice for my children. And when Ross sent me the podcast that you guys had done, and I listened to it, and then I and then I found out that part of your mission is preserving voices for for the future generations, I thought that's, that's exactly it. Like, that's an amazing thing. So some point my kids will be listening to this, hopefully after college, so they don't get the arrest <laughs> story, <laughs> but they'll be like, Oh, you know, my dad was this, or, you know, maybe I'm around, maybe I'm not. Um, it's, but it's, it's it, awesome to think about. It's real. it's, a, it's an, it's an incredible gift actually that you all are doing to give people their time. I mean, I've had conversation with you on things I haven't thought about in a long time. And I've really enjoyed sitting down and thinking about what I would talk about as much as what we've ended up talking about, which, mm. and you know, it's some of the things I thought we talked about, we did and some, you know, we didn't. Yeah. So, so anyway, so I, I would like to duplicate that. Um, I've got a friend who really wants to do podcasts and she's very funny and, uh, I would have to figure out the dynamic. You guys have got a really good dynamic where you go back and forth and, and you're supporting each other and me. And so I'd have to figure that part out. I imagine, is that hard to do? I think, well, <laughs> we'll, we'll both answer this question. Um, <laughs> Daniel is a uh, linguist. You're an, uh, an English guy. Uh, interlocution is important. you probably have known what that word means for a really long time. <laughs> I, I learned it recently from Daniel. Uh, but we, I, we're learning to be good at, at that. Uh, and a big part of interlocution is about listening. It's also about mm -hmm. timing. Uh, and what we both realized when we were younger, um, or when I was Daniel's age, I should say, um, I really enjoyed <laughs> hearing people's story and, mm -hmm. uh, stories. And that's true for me today. I There's something about the uniqueness of the story. There's something about... Um, an experience that somebody else can tell me about that I'm like, wow, I wish I had experienced that. Oh, why can't I go experience that? And the the comprehensiveness of those stories and those experiences are really powerful 
for me, and you can't get there without a lot of listening. Right. And so that's where we come from, is from a listening position. And as far as there being two of us, uh, it's definitely a non-standard. Well, there, there are like pairs of, of hosts, um, and it's pretty common. But um, a lot of the time you see like it's a one-person podcast. Like this is mm-hmm. the, the me show. And I think that uh, the way to, do, to, to, to build a dynamic is uh, the way to get good at anything, which is just reps. Sure. Right, and right. that's what we've done and we're still doing. And some guests, uh, I, I think one of us is just more naturally uh, able to converse and, mm-hmm. and talk with. And the other one of us is like totally fine with that and can sit and maybe ask a, a few questions, but be sort of in the back. And then in another podcast, it might be the other way around where like, you know, one day Paul might really mesh with the guest well and one day I might, or maybe we both do. And then it's one of those like really awesome ones. And which, is, which is frankly, and I'm not trying to say this because we're in the moment, but that's what we're doing right now is you and I are both meshing. Right. Which, right. Is, which is frankly, I think the most fun for us when that happens. So I have a question for you all then. And that is, what do you think makes a good question? I can't answer this question. Yeah, it's brutal, man. Uh, <laughs> every time I ask a question, I'm always like, man, that was I should have said that differently or not said that or not stuttered or something. But I think uh, I think that's, you know, if you find the answer to that, that, that that's like the key to knowledge because really good questions can be kind of like aggressive and maybe tip people off balance. Mm-hmm. But you also don't want to make people uncomfortable and uh, have them react defensively. Uh, but you also don't want to ask milk toast questions the whole time sure. that are really super low ball. So I don't know. I think I like to ask questions that assume the least uh, and are open ended, and so that the guests can really kind of take them in any direction they want. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and my questions are just about a deeper understanding of the guest. That's all I'm doing. But I I, I ask this not just for uh, for the logistics of a podcast, but. I think that's been one thing I've tried to do in my life is try to ask good questions and then listen to the answers. And, you know, just like you said, sometimes it's I get it right. Sometimes I don't. But it goes back to what I was saying about St. John's. I mean, here it was learning how to ask a question of a book. <clears throat> and I just wonder how much people think about what a good question really is and when to ask it and to listen to the answer and have a conversation, you know, in any context, personal, professional, relationships with people, whatever. Yeah. It's uh, deep thinking that I tend not to uh, engage in. <laughs> I, didn't mean to, I didn't mean to break something in that army brain of yours. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my God, he just threw a rod. <laughs> Daniel's like, you just killed my partner. <laughs> Daniel's seen that happen before. <laughs> this oh, podcast. God. Yeah. Um, is you, so tell us a little bit about your partner that you're going to be doing the, that you want to be doing the podcast with. So her name is Courtney Farrell. She is hilarious. Uh, just one of the most innovative thinkers, really funny, quick on her feet. Uh, she and I have been friends for many, many years. We actually grew up together and then, um, and then later uh, connected. She is married to a really good friend of mine, and she and I and my wife and uh, her husband, Wordy, we were all working together in this in uh, the same place when I was teaching in school. And so anyway, she and I have always just had these this really good chemistry of just going back and forth and telling funny stories and making each other laugh. And um, 
so I don't know what the podcast would be. I just know that she would be a really good person to do it with because yeah. she she has these really crazy ways of thinking about things. And then she says something that's so funny that you just, you're like, where did that come from? And I, I think that humor is, we need more humor in the world today. No question. No I mean, question. Just let's lighten up and just laugh a little bit, please. <laughs> you know? So, I, I mean, I think we will, we'll start to put it, start to bolt on some things in the next. And, you know, you guys have really, uh, educated me on this uh, on the the format and what's involved in it and and listening to the way that you all have had guests on and how you promote it or how you get people to tell their stories i just think it's great well i really appreciate the feedback uh yeah we're just trying to do our best and i don't really think too much about the the impact of it uh except you know sometimes we we did, for example, we recorded with a, a World War II vet back mm-hmm. in March, and he's no longer with us. Mm-hmm. And he told his story, and you know, have, having grown up in South Hill or Union level, and yeah. and going, and he, was, he was at the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, shaking right. Patton's hand, being at the Battle oh, of the wow. Bulge, like all that awesome stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know what happened. I mean, we sent them the DVDs, and we put the recordings up on our website. But it's time. It's those kind of of, of things where I I really feel like. It's really cool what we're doing, yeah, and it's yeah. worth it. That's a that's a really cool story. The daughters had tried to uh, record him with the military's help with other organizations linked to the military, and they they're just big bureaucracies that mm-hmm. bureaucracies that, that mm-hmm. can't get to everybody. And uh, my family connected through a friend who then knew their story, and I said, "Of course, we'll we'll do it." And so we yeah we drove to South Hill, Virginia, and we spent a good part of the day with that family doing it. Well, one thing that I was also thinking about, about your podcast, and, you know, when you, Paul, asked me, I, I was thinking, like, why do they want to talk to me? I mean, I don't have anything to talk about or whatever. And that's just, you know, a moment of self-doubt or self-consciousness or whatever. And <clears throat> one of the things that I've done, um, I help kids with their college essays, writing their college essays. And I've always, I always, it was my favorite thing to do when I was teaching English. And also, I just, I just think it's an amazing process when somebody who's a young person then gets to write about themselves. It's not analytical and it's not for a grade. It's, but it's something that really matters because they're putting their, their words out there for an admissions officer to read. And, you know, I, I run into these 18-year-olds who are always like, I mean, I don't have any funny story. I don't have any amazing story to tell. I haven't done this or I haven't done that. There's just real, you know, so many of them are just so hemmed in because they think they're supposed to be some super person right? and, tell, and then telling the story. And what I realize is that most of the time when I'm working with people, um, it's not about the writing. It's actually just asking them questions to pull the story out because everyone has got some unique yeah, story to tell. There's it, always it is theirs alone. Yeah, it, and and there's no way that anybody else can tell it. You know, and it you don't have to have, have done all these amazing things, but they're they're this is our human experience, right? So yeah. they're you all are tapping into it, and it's a great medium for tapping into people telling their story. Yeah, oral history type stuff. Yeah, it's very cool, and we do learn a lot more in this format than we would, I think, in almost any other. Mm-hmm. I don't know that any other guest has uh, 
has waxed so poetically about the purpose and the execution of this podcast. It's, it's almost like a, an advertisement for our podcast. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Oh, I'm, I'm promoting the hell out of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got, I got, I got, you know, several blog posts. Out of this. <laughs> do, do you hear that future guest? You should be doing the same after you record. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Here's what it's like for a Marine to get interviewed by an army guy. <laughs> Surprisingly friendly. Yeah. yeah well, of didn't. course. Yeah. 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 He, yeah. he was going to talk smack again. Nah. No, it's all good. It's all good. Hey, so can you, uh, do you still keep in touch with Amanda Ripley? I do. Uh, she's hard to stay in touch with um, just because she's super busy. But um, does she have an hour and 10 minutes to hop on a Zoom call with us? Where does she live? I'll ask her. Does she live around here? Uh, she lives in D.C. Okay. I'll, I'll, I mean, she's an amazing person. Her perspective, she, um, she, well, I I won't tell this story because she should tell it. But she started out her career uh, writing about these crazy stories about, you know, the bad guys, you know, gun runners, drug dealers, all this stuff you know, as a journalist. And then she turned to writing about natural disasters and what happens in a natural disaster, you know, from the government response and, you know, how people cooperate and all this kind of stuff. And then she, her most famous book, um, and she wrote a lot of uh, Atlantic articles about this is about education. Hmm. So she's really looking at it on these. She wrote this uh, book called uh, the smartest kids in the world and how they got that way. And she analyzed three different countries and their approach to education and how they done well on this one international test. And so, so Finland, South Korea, and Poland were the three. Mm. And she, it's a fascinating book because Finland and South Korea could not have education systems more different. You know, Finland, they'd go to kindergarten and eighth grade Mothers get two years of maternal maternal leave. Uh, the teaching profession in Finland is highly regarded. It's very competitive to get into, and they're they don't they're procedurally their school is very different. Whereas in South Korea, it's much more regimented, and and both of these countries were very successful on this test. And so she's trying to understand why is one country that has such a different system. Uh, available or, or does well. And then this other one that's a totally opposite does well. And then Poland is the one that changed the most. They, they, they improved the most. So that's why they're in there. Yeah. yeah. But I, I'll ask her. That's I mean, I'll, I'll send her, I'll send her a text and say, you're not going to believe this, but they wanted to talk to me, but they really wanted to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. You can phrase that. <laughs> she's, she's, she's great. She's great. Very cool. So uh, as we close this particular uh, podcast recording, tell us about uh, your family a little bit and how you met your wife maybe and uh, what your kids are up to these days. Sure. So Melissa uh, is my wife, and we met in college. And um, we just, uh, we've been together. We got married about seven years after we started dating and just, you know, been very committed to one another. And she's just an amazing person, very very loving and very patient and very tolerant, um, which is, you know, sort of a, a requirement when you're dealing with me, I guess. <laughs> um, and then, um, 
daughter, uh, who's 13, and son, who's 11, and they have very different interests, and they are just amazing people. And, uh, you know, fatherhood is a very, very, very difficult job, you know. No doubt. It's, I mean, there's no rule book on it. There's no manual. And um, I, you know, I know I've talked a lot about my dad on this, but I wish I could call him up and be like, hey, I'm really amazed that you dealt with me, you know, <laughs> especially when I called you that first weekend of college or, you know, just the other, you know, idiotic things that I did. Um, and my mother is, uh, she's, she's here in town. She, she's really struggling with a lot of the, the COVID restrictions. It's hard for her to understand that yeah. she's supposed to be so restricted. And that's, that's a, that's a tough spot to be in. Super tough. Um, yeah. But, you know, just like anything, you know, your family is an important source of, of strength and at the same time frustration. And everybody, you know, in COVID world, I think, is just, you know, living on top of one another. So it it makes certain things stronger and tighter and more intimate. And then other things, I think, you know, my kids are, like, ready for me to <laughs> go, yeah. go. Yeah. Um, last night, I did something I n- almost never do which I commandeered the TV and I watched a documentary on Levon Helm of the band. And I was like, I don't care if anybody's not interested in this. I'm going to watch this. I've been wanting to watch this for a year. I'm going to, I'm going to have to watch it because it sounds awesome. It is. It is amazing. It is cool. It is really amazing thing. If you're, are you a fan of the band? Oh yeah. Uh, This is, this is filmed in the, at the end of Levon's life. Hmm. And the, the, the documentarian goes and spends two years with him and, and his family. And, you know, they have all the footage of the band and they're talking about the history and they, you know, they've got all this stuff and they're interviewing his family and all these people that are part of it. And then him and and he's just a fascinating character. Yeah. Uh, You know, he was this guy from Turkey Scratch, Arkansas, that got connected to these Canadian musicians and he's the one American and they make this point in the documentary. He's the one American and the one Southern American and the rest of them are Canadian. And they're singing these like songs, like the night they drove old Dixie down and like all these, like these songs about the South and the, and, and it was like, they were figuring it out through Levon. At least that's the point of the doc, documentary. Mm, yeah. Right? Well, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. No something doubt. that something that eleven year old and a thirteen year old might not care too much about. Oh yeah, I, I the, one of them came down. I was like, "You want to watch this? What is it? Oh, it's about this uh, <laughs> this band." <laughs> and uh, and they're like, "No," <laughs> and um, and I'm glad they didn't because there's a lot in there about the drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, mm. I mean, Levon, they were hard partying guys. So rock star lifestyle, like a lot of rock stars, especially back then. Yeah. Well, cool. Mason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to my stories and being willing to, to have me here. It's just been an amazing experience from my point of view. So thank you. I'm happy to hear that. We're going to have Courtney on and we're going to have both of you on at the same time. Oh, Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. No question. Okay. All right. (laughs) Thank you guys. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.